Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Well, it's really a, a joy to speak to our next guest, Michael Sonnenfeld. He's the chairman and founder of Tiger 21. Tiger 21 is a peer membership organization for high net worth wealth creators and preservers, helping them to navigate the challenges and opportunities that success creates. Tiger 21 has 900 members with more than $88 billion in assets. So a really unique perspective and some from a, 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 the group of ultra wealthy uh, individuals, business owners uh, that have monetized their businesses. Uh, Michael, thanks so much for joining us. Love to get your thoughts on what your members are telling you now that at least in the U.S. there are clear signs that we are coming out on the other side of this pandemic. How are they viewing the world and, and investment opportunities? Well, thanks for having me. Um, you know, it's an interesting time in one sense. If you were Rip Van Winkle and you went to sleep a year and a half ago and you woke up today, you wouldn't be all that shocked. You might not even have known there was a pandemic looking at the financial numbers. But at this particular moment, I think our members are digesting some incredibly mixed signals. On the one hand, uh, there's a lot of concern about inflation uh, and mixed messages about areas of the economy where there is inflation. And on the other hand, as you've just talked about, the, you know, there's some question about whether that we're in a bubble and whether we're at the top of a market and how do you protect yourself. Uh, and yet there are these long-term businesses that have incredible potential. So it's a lot of mixed signals that feels a little different than we've had in the past. That's pretty much a spring back effect uh, coming out of the pandemic, I think. Michael, how are your clients preparing for the changes that can emerge when it comes to taxes? Sure. Uh, first of all, they're not clients, they're members, um, because uh, these are all people who join the organization and we're not an advisor. Uh, but we do get a sense of what they're doing. Uh, we, had a, um, we had a poll, which was really interesting, that showed uh, with members that when taxes grow more than 5% differential, behavior starts changing. And one of the things we talk about in our groups, we have 75 groups across the globe, um, is you know what happens when taxes really rise quickly? Capital gains is the one we talk about a lot. There's some evidence when you raise capital gains above 30%, you may not actually increase revenue to the government because people's behavior change and they don't realizes many gains and it becomes counterproductive. So depending on where the changes occur will impact behavior. Obviously, you have tremendous migration out of New York into uh, Florida and out of Silicon Valley into Austin, just to use as an example, uh, because uh, when you had the um, elimination of the deductibility of state and local taxes, it made the high-tax states really uh, expensive, and for some people, they uh, want to change their lifestyle as a result of it. Again, that 5% differential starts showing behavioral changes. Michael, I'd love to get a sense of kind of what your members think about cryptocurrencies. A lot of investors just across the spectrum are, are, are A, trying to understand what the whole world of, of crypto, and then B, if I do have a working understanding of it, how do I invest in it? So how are your folks, again, the sure. ultra-wealthy folks thinking about this space? Sure. So 
we tend to separate. First of all, our members are not only interested in crypto, but some of them are running some of the new crypto funds and have really extraordinary expertise. That's one of the advantages about being in our groups. But generally, the first order is sort of a substitute for gold, some attributes of particularly Bitcoin superior to gold, the most being that you have a capped uh, amount of Bitcoin uh, so that you have scarcity. Uh, and historically, gold was a 1% to 3% asset across the average of our members. And today, my guess is that Bitcoin is approaching perhaps a 1% number. You know, with a scale of our organization, that's still approaching a billion dollars of uh, Bitcoin potentially. Um, but the, the bigger story is the blockchain story. The blockchain story, many members think could be as big as the Internet itself because of the disruptive nature uh, that it will have on trade, commerce, and finance. So in the Bitcoin and in the cryptocurrencies in the public area, you have things like, uh, I think it's Grayscale, Bitcoin Trust, and I think they have some other publicly traded trusts. So you can buy it like a stock, and it reflects uh, the rise and fall of the price of Bitcoin. But if you're interested in the broader, and of course Coinbase, uh, having gone public, is the largest infrastructure play uh, for cryptocurrency. And in the, in the broader uh, blockchain area, um, probably the number one, uh, company involved in blockchain because of commerce is Amazon. Of course, if you buy Amazon, you're buying a lot of other themes as well. But over the long term, they, they and some of the other tech giants uh, really are looking at uh, how uh, blockchain will uh, change the world. Michael, I'd love to switch gears just a little bit to another hot button area, which is real estate with prices so high. Are your members buying? Are they waiting? Or what are they doing in regards sure. to their real estate purchases right now? So, so you know, our members um, join Tiger when they have liquidity events and uh, have built a large, successful company. And the number one asset among our members has been uh, real estate for over a decade, uh, followed by private equity and then public equity, or today it's been reversed with public equity going forward. Real estate is king. And the reason is that's where our members have expertise. But, um, you know, when they say like still water runs deep, um, if you say the word real estate, it sounds like it's a single market, but there's no market more in transition. If you look at the retail space, there's just uh, endless negativity going forward because those internet sales have changed the way people buy forever. And if that's hurt the retail space, the industrial space that serves those Internet sales, the last mile delivery and some of the telecommunications uh, industrial real estate has been yep. on fire. That's been amazing. And in the middle, you know, you have the big question about residential, which right. is just the perennial favorite. It's income producing yep. and office. Everybody's going to wonder what's happening with office. That's yep. that's the big question. Hey, Michael, thanks so much for joining us again. We always love getting your perspective. It is a unique perspective. Michael Sonnenfeld, chairman and founder of Tiger 21, $88 billion assets. This is Bloomberg. Well, we did get the uh, ISM Services Index data this morning. I guess for the month of June, it fell to 60.1% versus the record 64 in May. So that's not so good. The expectation was for 63.5. So 
came in a little bit below expectations. That's not so good. But heck, a reading of 60.1 in and of itself is very good. So how to really parse through this, we welcome Steve Rusciuto. He's a chief economist for Mizuho Security. Steve, what was your takeaway of this ISM data this morning? Well, I mean, you kind of hit the nail on the head a moment ago, Paul, when you talked about the fact that, you know, it's down relative to expectations, but the headline number is still in that expansionary phase. Now, this is for the service component of the economy. The manufacturing number are disappointed as well relative to expectations, but again, still at a healthy level. But what's most important about the data in here is the details of the report. You know, the details of the report getting at what was actually happening in terms of orders and employment and things of that nature, where's where we saw the weakness. And the biggest negative surprise was in that employment component, which came in at minus four, it came in at 49.3 versus 55.3. And that's really a fairly large drop. That's a six index point drop in the employment component. And considering that this is what's really being the factors that people are looking at in driving monetary policy, especially after that solid payroll employment number yesterday, last Friday, in terms of the headline number, coming in at 850, this disappointment tells you that perhaps that 850 number is more an anomaly than it is going to be the new norm. Well, what are some of the the more complicated aspects of this, right? You know, ISM had said material shortages, inflation, logistics, and employment resources continue to be a problem, right? And so it looks like you hit a snag in one part of the economy, and then it impacts another part of the economy, and it looks like um, there's a bit of a tangled web of issues here. <laughs> so uh, how do how does this number kind of stand when you think about broader economic recoveries here? Well, I mean, look, the reality is the economy is going to put in a very, very good growth rate number this year, okay? Second quarter GDP, our number is 7.5%. That's a really solid number, but it doesn't compare to the 9% numbers people have been talking about. And this data, again, doesn't fit with the numbers that have been being discussed in some areas, consistent with, you know, a million workers being added every month between now and the end of the year uh, in terms of the employment numbers. These numbers are telling you that a lot of the, in, the incentive to the economy that was provided by the, um, the, the $2.8 trillion in stimulus that we were given um, earlier this year between the Trump program and the Biden program, the not hundred billion and the and the one point nine trillion program. That has largely run its course. And you're starting to see the economy come back slowly to a more realistic growth level. It's still going to be robust and solid relative to our historical norms for the next couple of quarters. But the upside momentum is kind of over and done with. We've seen the peak in the economy and now we're rolling down the other side of that. Do you think so how do you think the Fed kind of looks at, at that, Steve? Does the Fed feel like I can in fact stay on the sidelines, or do we think back to the last Fed meeting where the dot plots got some people's attention about potentially tightening? You know, again, when the Fed changes its dots in 2023, which, to be honest, it's a year and a half out, um, you know, and people pay attention to that, that, I think, is the mistake. You know, talking about going from one dot to two dots in terms of one hike to two hikes in 20, the end of 2023, in an environment where the unemployment rate actually moved up to 5.9% uh, from 5.8% when everyone's expecting it to drop to 5.6% is going to be a problem 
for those more hawkish members of the committee, because even though the employment number was good at 850,000, the more political aspect of this is the jobless rate. And the household employment numbers weren't particularly robust. So I think when you look at all this, it's a really good economy. It's just not as strong as people want to see to fit with what we have seen in terms of the Hawks discussions and the optimistic scenarios as to where this economy is going to go. Essentially, members of the committee, and I think a lot of people in the financial community, have written checks this economy can't cash. It's a great economy. But it's not as strong as they would like. I like a little Top Gun reference there. Steve Rizzuto, Chief Economist for Mizuho Securities USA. He's, I'm sure he's getting ready for Top Gun 2, which I think is coming in the fall from Paramount. Steve Rizzuto, good to have him on here talking about this ISM data. Still pretty strong. Don't freak out. The bond market definitely paying attention here uh, with the 10-year uh, you know, below 2%, um, but still a good number uh, overall. Looking at WTI crude oil here, $74.33 an ounce, off about 80 cents. But it had been as high as $76.98 earlier today. So this is just moving higher. We've seen oil really over the last several weeks. And all I know about that is it's a commodity. So it's supply, it's demand. So I'm guessing demand isn't, you know, more than supply right here. So that's basically my analysis. Fortunately, we have somebody much, much smarter on this to explain it to us. Fernando Valle, he's an oil and gas analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Fernando, let's start with OPEC here. Um, They didn't get it done this weekend. So tell us what's going on with OPEC, uh, what happened over the weekend and kind of how you think it might play out. Sure, Paul. First, thanks for being here, uh, for letting me participate today. Um, there's a major disagreement between uh, OPEC Plus, including Russia, uh, and the UAE, the United Arab Emirates. And the big dispute is really about when you set the baseline for the OPEC Plus cuts. Uh, there's talk of extending the cuts beyond April 2022. The UAE doesn't want to extend this early ahead, but they are okay to comply with the cuts. Uh, but their baseline for production is set in October 2018, and they added capacity uh, just after that. So currently, the UAE has about a third of its capacity that's been idled since uh, the cuts in 2019. Um, and so they want to bring back, uh, they want to reset the baseline to be their production, production production capacity as it stands, as opposed to October 2018. And as opposed to the Saudi Arabian economy, the UAE is a lot more dependent on oil revenues. So even though they're benefiting from the rise in oil prices, Uh, they're still struggling a little bit with their fiscal balance uh, without that additional production. Can you draw out what's at stake here? Because really it looks like it's the stability of the global economic recovery. Oil is already at a six-year high. Uh, What are the ramifications of a lot of these delays and the volatility that's arising from them? Well, currently, the, the biggest issue is just uh, higher oil prices for the short term, although right now they're trading down a little bit. But uh, without resetting that baseline uh, and getting additional volume, uh, we would, in, in the current status quo of the mint recovery in OECD, uh, we would expect this uh, imbalance to continue and drive oil prices higher. And there's actually pressure from the Biden administration for OPEC to increase some of that production back so we don't see a disparate impact on inflation, as we're seeing with other commodities. So that's really what's in the balance now. And ultimately, uh, energy is really um, 
hinges on GDP growth and, and gasoline and jet on disposable income growth. So higher oil prices are actually a, a long-term issue for uh, oil demand. So there is an interest uh, for OPEC to not get back to the $100 oil prices that we saw in 2010 to 2014, because really that's what gave rise to shale. That's what gave rise to a lot of the, the uh, improvements in, in mileage and that, that really uh, curtailed oil demand. So, Fernando, generally speaking, where would OPEC like oil to trade in an ideal world? I know different countries, I guess, have different break-evens, and, but just give us a sense of how that works. Yeah, exactly. So the break-even as opposed to a company is not what it takes for you to cover your operating expenses and everything else. It's because these com- uh, these countries are essentially uh, almost 100% dependent on oil, is how much, what oil price they require in order to cover uh, their fiscal costs. And that will vary from Venezuela, which is in the 200s, uh, to Saudi, which is probably closer to 55 to 60, uh, depending on uh, their production levels. And um, so the, the Saudi and, and Russia can, can make do in the 60 to $70 range, um, but they probably prefer anywhere between 70 to $80. I think that tends to be a price where you can st- start to see uh, an impact on global demand. Uh, we have a heuristic that when uh, total energy costs are over 7% of the global uh, the domestic product, uh, it starts to be detrimental to overall growth. So I think that gets you anywhere between 60 to 75. And I think that's probably their Goldilocks scenario uh, where they're making a lot of money, um, but at the same time, they're not damaging uh, long-term demand. Can you give us a roadmap here of what the next couple of days should look like and what the conflicts might be in the interim? Well, I think that's that's everybody's guess now. Um, the UAE has said uh, that the meeting has been postponed, while Saudi and Russia have said the meeting was canceled. Uh, so I, I think for now, at least in the short term, we're going to continue having these uh, dueling narratives. Uh, I think talks of the UAE leaving OPEC are probably uh, not uh, unfounded, uh, but I think we'll, we'll, we'll get more pressure to at least get a, a temporary uh, at least a small increase in production over the next couple of days. Uh, and that could be coupled with uh, extending the deal beyond uh, the current expiry. Hey, Fernando, you mentioned earlier the U.S. shale producers. They've not been the most disciplined lot historically. Do we expect them to, to just start drilling again? Well, so far we haven't seen that except for the private operators. The public operators have stuck to their capital discipline and a part of that is because they have to, because they took on too much debt during the pandemic, and the focus now is to reduce that debt rather than continue to grow. Um, you've seen anywhere, one from ConocoPhillips, who's always been disciplined, increasing share buybacks, uh, to Oxy, that uh, hasn't always been the most disciplined, but focusing instead of debt on debt reduction. So right now, when you look at the track spread count, um, which is how many walls are completed, uh, only the Permian is, is up significantly from the lows of uh, April 2020. But even that there, we haven't seen a return to 2019 levels. So we're seeing that discipline. Uh, most of the growth has been from private operators that don't have the same uh, pressures as the public ones. And the public ones have outlined more plans to return capital as opposed to continuing to grow. What can we see coming out of Washington? Um, real quick here, really in 30 seconds or so, what can we expect from Joe Biden in terms of guidance? 
I think mostly uh, diplomacy as opposed to outward uh, comments. The, the administration is in a tough spot where they have to promote higher oil production, which is really against their um, overall uh, stated goals. Uh, but in order to prevent uh, higher inflation that could be damaging to the, to the U.S. and global economy, they have to pressure OPEC Plus to raise production a little bit, but they can't be seen outwardly to be doing the, that so, so, so steadfastly. Fernando, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. As always, you're our go-to person for Global Oil. Fernando Valle, oil and gas analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Looking at WTI crude here, it's been a really volatile day. Traded as high as $77 per barrel. Now down, trading down to $74. So uh, volatility continues in the global energy markets. We'll pay attention to OPEC. This is Bloomberg. All right, let's talk plastic waste. It's a big, big issue for a lot of consumer products companies uh, as they try to combat this issue. There's different technologies out there for doing that, and we as consumers try to do our part by recycling. Uh, let's check in with Martin Stefan. He's a deputy CEO of Carbios. Carbios is a company that trades on the Euronext under the ticker symbol ALCRB, based in France. Martin, thanks so much for joining us here. Talk to us, just frame out for us the global problem that is plastics waste. Yes, uh, thank you for inviting me. Uh, you know, uh, 350 million metric tons of plastics are produced every year, of which 10 million metric tons end up in the environment every year. So it's a big issue. And the issue is not plastics. The issue is plastic waste, because we have been producing plastics for more than 50 years, and we have not taken uh, enough care of the end of life of plastics. And Carbios, we are the first and only company to develop biological technologies for the end of life of plastics and fibers. Martin, maybe you could speak a little to how large global corporations like L'Oreal or Pepsi are able to be a part of the solution rather than the problem. They are part of the solution, yes, and they really feel responsible for that. It's a co-responsibility, you know, to tackle this plastics pollution issue. Nobody will be able to put an end to plastics pollution by itself. So it's really a global play. And uh, our partners, you know, L'Oreal, Nestle, uh, PepsiCo, Century, they are very uh, aware that uh, it's by... Um, collaborating with a startup like us, with governments, with uh, NGOs, that uh, we will develop solutions to really tackle this plastics pollution issue, which is not acceptable. Talk to us, Martin, about kind of what your technology is, what it does, and, and, and kind of how it's being used. Yes, so we use a biological tool, which is an enzyme. Uh, you know, we have a lot of enzymes in our body. An enzyme is a catalyst which triggers a reaction. Normally, it triggers a biological reaction, but our scientists had the idea to use this biological tool to trigger not a biological reaction, but a chemical reaction. And this chemical reaction is to break down plastics into its uh, uh, monomers, which are the common the building blocks of plastics. So instead of putting together the same molecule a thousand of times to make a plastic or a fiber, our enzyme breaks down this long chain of molecules into single molecules, which are called monomers. Then we isolate 
the monomers, we purify them, and we recombine them again to make new plastic with the same quality as plastics which are made from petrochemicals. So it's a really a solution for the end of life. It is not a reuse solution. It's a pure recycling. It's a virtuous loop which we have uh, made possible. Are there certain types of plastics that don't work to go through these technologies? Uh, you know, I think even as an ordinary recycler, people have to think twice before they, they do throw out or, or recycle certain types of plastics. And it's interesting to see what's happening across different cities when it comes to, you know, really the cities cracking down on certain companies using and distributing certain types of plastics to their consumers. Yes, yeah, so today our technology works for polyesters, which is mostly PET, which is the plastics for bottles, but also food trays, for example, or textile. When you see polyester on a garment, it is exactly the same material than the material which is used to make transparent bottles. So our technology works for any kind of PET, transparent bottle, but also colored bottle or opaque or food trays or polyester t-shirts. We can depolymerize or deconstruct all kinds of PT waste to make any kind of PT product. So we can make a bottle from a bottle, but we can also make a t-shirt from a bottle or a bottle from a t-shirt. It is exactly the same for us. Uh, in the future, we have the intention and the goal to develop this technology for other polymers. So our technology must be seen really as a platform to, um, to recycle right. any kind of plastics in the future. That's a fascinating technology, fascinating story for a huge global problem. Just think about all the plastic bottles we see on the side of the road or worse yet in the waterways. Martin Stefan, Deputy CEO of Carbios, uh, coming to us uh, from France. We appreciate that. Again, it, you know, that really is a global issue, uh, Sonali, and it's just begging out for technological solutions in addition to more recycling because only 14% of plastics actually are recycled. Well, Paul, I know people who have given up shopping with plastics for days in a row, and it's yep. possible, it's hard to do. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.